Hello, and welcome to Thin Air, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the missing with new episodes every two weeks. Thin Air is hosted by me, Daniel Calderon. And me, Jordan Sims. We are two friends and writers who wanted to share the stories of those left behind and the social issues that surround these haunting cases. For more information about us and our podcast, check out thinairpodcast.com, where you'll find blogs on all our episodes, links to our sources, and more. We are so excited to have a new sponsor for today's episode. Thanks to RX Bar for supporting Thin Air Podcast. RX Bar is a whole food protein bar with no BS. Get 25% off your first order at rxbar.com slash thin air and use the promo code thin air. That's rxbar.com slash thin air, promo code thin air. People continue to come because it's a matter of survival for them. It's a human rights disaster here in the United States. It's an issue that doesn't get enough attention. People are dying extremely painful, solitary deaths, and it doesn't need to happen. They were two peas in a pod. I mean, he's my son. I feel like, like so much like him. He's funny like him, and he's, you know, crazy like him. It's really hard like, to watch him work for him. And I, you know, I knew he wasn't there and it was hard to tell him, you know, he's not here. It was just, it was devastating. In our podcast, we've often made mention of NamUs, or the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System. NamUs is the largest online database for missing persons cases in the U.S., currently with 12,731 active missing persons cases available for public view. Today's story is the story of NamUs missing person file number 21314. His name is listed as Jose Garay Garay. I refer to him as Rick. That's how I knew him. He didn't, he, yeah, he didn't go by Jose. In their culture, I mean, a lot of them, that's their, they, they use that as a first name, but a lot of them go by their middle name, or they alternate in generations. But he was known as Rick. Uh, middle name was Ricardo. Can you say your full name? Uh, is my full name going to be publicized? It doesn't have to be. Yeah, I don't want it to be. Um, just because they're, it's just because of the political issue and people being so upset about it um, and because I have a minor child. So, I mean, I can, so my, my name is Anne. What was your relationship to the missing person? He was my fiance. Anne is afraid to give her full name because of the circumstances of Rick's disappearance and because of the response she always receives when telling the story publicly of how he went missing. That's because Rick Garay disappeared in the Sonoran Desert while entering the U.S. illegally in the summer of 2009. Oh, it'll make somebody angry. Yeah, it'll make some, yeah, it's going to make somebody angry. I mean, the, for one of the, the first interview I ever did, an interview, and then there was a typed article that was published online, and the comments that followed it were just nasty. And I wasn't expecting it to be that nasty, uh, and it was hard to see. People get real bold when they're behind a computer screen. We have lost touch with humanity as a country. It becomes very evident when these types of subjects get brought up. Rick's case is one of the most divisive missing persons cases we have ever covered here on Thin Air. On our podcast, we've told stories of some of the most horrific things happening to a person that you can think of, and the nature of our podcast is inherently unsettling. But Rick's story is one that we knew would be controversial. There was a guy that made a comment about, oh, she's looking for her husband. She should just look where the buzzards are in the desert. It's mean. It's horrible. It's horrible. I don't care who the person is that's missing. People act like they forget that they've made mistakes or that they are not perfect. I didn't know how bad it was in other countries until this really happened to me. I didn't... You know, until I knew him, actually, and then, you know, him telling me about how hard it is uh, to just feed your kids. 
More than anything else, we ask for compassion and attention for missing persons cases of all kinds. We believe that any person who goes missing, regardless of their background, status, and skin color, deserves empathy and understanding. An understanding that someone loved them, someone misses them, that they were a person who had thoughts and feelings and deserves to have their story heard. We believe that caring about and trying to understand the lives of others is a non-partisan issue. So we ask that whatever your feelings about immigration in the United States, do you hear Rick's story and how he disappeared one night in 2009 in one of the harshest terrains on earth? Rick first entered the U.S. after leaving his home country of El Salvador in the late 1990s. The time that he came here, he came, um, well, the, in El Salvador, they had like a civil war. He came here under asylum uh, protection. And so he had what they call temporary protective status. When he eventually got here, he was granted that. And that's because of the gangs and the, um, the, the war going on in El Salvador. So he fought in the war back in El Salvador as well. He was in the, yeah, he was in the, I don't know what they call it over there, army or whatever. I'm not sure what they call it, but he was a soldier at one point. The civil war in El Salvador ended in 1992 after nearly 12 years of constant violence and political turmoil. The violence was especially cruel against its own citizens, with the now infamous government-backed death squads that kidnapped and murdered what it perceived to be dissidents, but many of whom were innocent women and children. By 1990, after over 10 years of war, over a million people had been displaced and 75,000 were dead. In addition to surviving one of the worst human rights crises of the 20th century, Rick also had another reason to come to the U.S. to provide for his family. He has uh, two children back in El Salvador as well, and nothing made him happier than his kids, ever. Like, it broke his heart to be here and away from his kids, but his other kids were already older and he supported them financially. Um, he sent them money every month without a hiccup. According to an article from the Migration Policy Institute, one of the only ways for Rick's family to get out of poverty after the war would have been for a family member to migrate elsewhere and send money back home. The article reads, quote, successful migrants who obtain jobs abroad, send back remittances, contribute to raising incomes, and lift households out of poverty, disproportionately injecting cash into poor and rural communities, end quote. This is not to say that Rick was becoming rich while living in the U.S. Finding an adequate job was a huge challenge. Once he got here, um, he did say a few times, you know, that it was so hard to make money working in the job that he did. And not really ever picking up English as much as he wanted to, not being able to get hired with a reputable, um, you know, he didn't have an education, and so, like, an education here, and so it was hard for him to get a good-paying job, and so he worked his butt off in it, you know, and sometimes he would get down about that and feel like he couldn't make it and wish he would just, he would be back home. But then he knows, he knew that back home was not safe either and that his kids would suffer for it because there's, no work back home. Ultimately, the, the reason why he came here was because of the conditions back in El Salvador at the time and because he had two small children that needed to be, that he felt, you know, needed better support financially than he was able to provide them back home. Rick was living in California and working, as Anne described, when the two first met. I used to see him at the coffee shop every morning when I'd go get coffee for me and my coworkers on the way from dropping off all of our stuff at the mailboxes and picking up our mail. Over time, I just, I mean, I, probably a few months went by before I ever talked to him, but that's, that's how we met. What was he like? What was his personality like? He was extremely funny. Probably one of the funniest persons I've, I've ever met. He was always the life of the party, for sure. Like, the party didn't start until he showed up. He was fun, and he was... You know, he loved his children. Anne and Rick get in a relationship, and Anne gives birth to their son in 2007. The family was very close, especially Rick and his son. Anne described them as basically inseparable. But just two years after the birth of their son, Rick had a run-in with local police and was detained by immigration in April of 2009. 
Before being taken back to El Salvador, Rick was taken to a holding facility in Arizona, where he awaited deportation. Anne and her son were lucky enough to be able to see him before he left, something that not many family members of those being deported are able to do. It was an incredibly emotional goodbye. He was in the detention center in Arizona for three weeks, but they moved him around to different immigration detention centers. I went to go see him. I was lucky enough. I had a friend of mine whose parents at the time heard what happened, heard that he had been arrested and was sent to the Arizona Immigration Processing Center. And they bought me and they bought us airline tickets and hotel stay. I mean, it was just unbelievable because there's no way I could have afforded to go at the time. Oh, my son just nearly jumped out of my arms when he saw him. And, and, and my, you know, and, and him too, like Rick would just, you know, he had no idea. He just cried. So we were just like in a cafeteria setting. There was no, no handcuffs, no nothing. They let us stay for, I, I felt like it was like two or three hours. and It was only supposed to be 30 minutes, but they let us stay. And he looked horrible. He had blood on his, like all up and down his, clothes they had given him, you know, and he had all these welts on him. Um, he said they had given him all these shots. He didn't know what they were. They had some, the two people that were in the room watching over everybody else. Like They had a Polaroid camera. They're not allowed to bring a cell phone or anything in, and so uh, they took a Polaroid of us, and that's, I mean, that was the last time they saw him. But uh, I remember having to leave to go to my locker because they, they charged like $2 for the picture. And so I had to go get money out of the locker, but I had, I couldn't leave my son. I had to take him with me and I had to pick him up and, and we started walking out of the room and he was like clawing at my shirt, screaming to get back to his dad. It was the guard. Oh God. There was a, a, an older woman guard at the door and she started crying. It was so emotional, you know, like just seeing that. And it's, he was a baby. He didn't know what the hell was going on. He just knew he wanted to be with his daddy. He had missed him. They were they were really close. When I had him, it was kind of like, you know, I had him because Rick really wanted to have the opportunity to raise a child here. And his kids were already grown back home, and he missed out on it. And um, he did the midnight feedings. He, he took him to daycare. He picked him up on the days he got off early. Every minute he had there, he wasn't working. He was spent, you know, with, with him. They were two peas in a pod. I mean, he's my son. I feel like, like so much like him. He's funny like him, and he's you know crazy like him, but really devastating for for both of them when everything happened. I mean, my son was just he would look he would look for him every day. They used to do this thing where they'd run through the house and they'd hide from each other. And my son would you know we'd get home from you know work that day or picking up from daycare, and he would run into the house and he would run to the bathroom and then he would run to the closet and he would, you know, sorry. It was really hard like, to watch him look for him. Um, and I, you know, I knew he wasn't there and it was hard to tell him, you know, he's not here. Um, but I think it was just, it was devastating. On May 10th, Rick is deported back to El Salvador. Shortly after, he makes the decision to return home to his fiance and son in the U.S. I mean, it wasn't even a decision. He immediately, he knew he was going to, to come back. Um, and he had uh, some friends over there that were uh, deported a few months prior. Uh, it was a husband and wife, and they had uh, some kids that were born in the United States. Then he let me know June 20th uh, that they had come up with the money and that they were going to um, contact the coyote. As a side note, Anne is referring here to a smuggler, someone who is paid to help people across the border. They were going to start coming back. And so um, he let me know, I believe it was the morning of June 22nd, that he was going to be or it was the evening of June 22nd. Oh, I don't remember now. I'm so sorry. But he was going to be leaving the next morning to start uh, coming this way. I didn't know a lot of information then about border crossing or what it meant. Um, truthfully, I honestly thought that he would just be, like, coming in a car, that they were going to smuggle him in, like, across the border, like, come through, like, 
Tijuana. I had no idea. He didn't tell me he was coming through Arizona. He didn't, like, I knew for all, I mean, I didn't know. Um, I just, I didn't ask questions. Rick was about to embark on a journey through Arizona in the Sonoran Desert, located on the U.S.-Mexico border. It's a route that many immigrants from Mexico and Central America take every year. A 2015 National Geographic article states that 5 million people were arrested trying to cross here from 2001 to 2013. My name is Chelsea Halstead, and my organization is the Colibri Center for Human Rights, and I'm the deputy director. So it used to be prior to the mid-1990s to early 2000s, the way that people would cross the border was in these urban areas. So um, El Paso was a, a huge crossing corridor, San Diego, Nogales. Um, they were these cities that sat on the border, and that's where people would cross. That's where people had crossed for generations. The Calibri Center is located in Tucson, Arizona, and was created as a way to connect missing migrants and their families. Because, as Chelsea explained, the families left behind often don't have anywhere else to turn. Beginning in the early 2000s, there was a crisis unfolding that's really continued over the the next 20 years. It really did start towards the end of the 90s. And what it was is this crisis of death and disappearance on the border, Uh, really as a result of enforcement strategies and changes in security policy on on the U.S.-Mexico border. It was a strategic shift that forced people into the most isolated parts of the desert where they started to go missing and die in incredibly high numbers. Colibri exists because traditionally speaking, when somebody has a missing person in the United States, they need to go to law enforcement to report that person missing. Uh, But for this population that we work with, uh, many of them are undocumented. So going to the police is not an option. That's why we're here. Chelsea helped us to understand why Rick was forced to travel through the desert in the first place, rather than come through a city. Something really shifted in the mid-1990s, right after the signing of the North American Free Trade Agreement, which really opened up borders in terms of trade and, and goods and services. There was a clamping down on border security in terms of the flow of people. The Clinton administration started sealing off all of the urban entry points along the border through a strategy that the INS at the time referred to as prevention through deterrence. And this is the idea that if you make it impossible to cross the border where it's safe, that people would be deterred by the natural barrier of the desert and they wouldn't want to cross. This strategy that Chelsea refers to here, prevention by deterrence, is a shocking tactic that, by design, uses immigrant death and disappearance as a way to deter those who would attempt to cross the border. It is literally intended to funnel those entering illegally into extreme environments. The Sonoran Desert is a prime example of this. Here, immigrants face dangerous temperatures, venomous snakes and other dangerous animals, and a severe lack of clean water. Unfortunately, this was a really short-sighted strategy that is something that was built on human suffering. You cannot put people intentionally in harm's way and just hope that they're going to be scared enough that they're not going to risk it. The desperation that people were coming from and continue to, to you know, try and escape is so real that they're already fighting for their lives. It's already a matter of survival. We can see this on the bones, actually. There's, there's intense evidence of suffering on the bones of those who've died while crossing the border. Evidence of malnutrition, of, you know, uh, fractures that, that healed incorrectly because they were never set by a doctor. Diseases that you just don't see in you know, developed countries that have gone completely untreated. The reason that people are going missing and and dying and disappearing in the desert is because whereas it used to be, you know, a 30-minute kind of dash across the border, now people are out there for weeks. They're walking in extreme heat. Uh, They're drinking from contaminated water sources, cattle tanks, 
irrigation ditches. You cannot physically carry enough water to sustain you when, when crossing the Sonoran Desert. And it's one of the most extreme environments on planet Earth. People are still coming, um, not because they don't know about the danger, you know. At this point, enough people have died that the word is really out in sending communities about the risks associated with, with crossing. It's a human rights disaster here in the United States. It's, it's an issue that doesn't get enough attention and it really is devastating because people are dying extremely painful, solitary deaths and it doesn't need to happen. It, the border hasn't always been deadly, but it was made deadly through policy. It, it's, it's a crisis by design. Rick knew firsthand how deadly a trip like this could be. Anne didn't know if Rick had entered through the Sonoran Desert when he came here initially, but she does know that one of his early attempts at crossing nearly killed him. I want to say it was like 19... Let's see, like 1998. At the time, what I remember him telling me is that he was in really bad shape and they had to, he, he ended up on a, in a helicopter going back and they took him back to Mexico. I think he told them he was Mexican. They dropped him off back in Mexico, but he was in the hospital. He said he had blood coming from his, like he was pooping out blood and stuff. So like, in really, really bad shape. Despite having been through this before and knowing the extreme risks, he made a decision to return to the U.S. regardless. So why would someone do that? Risk everything, risk their own life to come back. I just said, okay, I, you know, I, I didn't want him to do it that way. And so... I, you know, I, I wasn't really um, for it. I wanted to try to get things done the right way, but he was adamant because it would have taken a long time uh, and we had a, a two-year-old son. He missed him, and so he didn't want to be away from him. It, it was devastating to uh, both my son and him to be uh, apart. And so he called me like every day, sometimes twice a day along the way when he could. Um, from either somebody had a cell phone or he'd find a pay phone and use a calling card. Um, he'd call me collect um, when he could, and he uh, would call. And then I talked to him as they were making their way up through, you know, Central America, up through the, the Mexico. And um, the last I spoke to him was June 30th, so it was about a week later. Um, he said he was at the border, uh, and he said that, at that point, he told me he was going to be coming through Arizona. That, and I knew that. At, at that point, he told me he was going to be walking the next day and that he would be home before the holiday weekend, which was July 4th. Um, that was the last time I ever heard from him. Rick is last seen near the city of Sasabe, Arizona, just into the U.S. on the U.S.-Mexico border. As Anne mentioned earlier, Rick traveled with some friends from El Salvador, a husband and wife who had also been deported back to the country. The man and woman were returning to the U.S. to try and get back to their children who had been born in the U.S. It seems like Rick, the husband and wife, and potentially a group of other people met with a smuggler to take them through the three to five day trek through the desert. A week went by and I didn't hear from him and I started asking people that I knew at work about the process and, you know, how long should I wait? How long should it, you know, um, what can happen? And they said, you know, I was told that sometimes people could be kept in these houses for up to a week or two weeks, depending on if it's not safe to cross. And so they could just be hiding out. And by June, I remember by June, or excuse me, July 17th, um, I knew something happened. I, I felt it. I was devastated. Like I, I knew he was dead. And um, it wasn't until the first week of August that I got a phone call from his niece asking if I had heard from him. And I said, no, um, you know, you guys would have heard from, you know, I would have let you know if I heard from him, have you heard anything? And then she said, he, you know, he's dead. The people that he was with, the two people, the husband and wife, um, were in jail. They had been detained and they contacted their cousin that lived in California and let them know that something had happened to Rick and that he didn't make it. Um, and so that's how he went missing, and that's how I found out. Once she realizes something is seriously wrong, 
Anne isn't sure where to turn. I don't know. I guess you go into, like, survival mode, right? Like, you just, you figure it out, right? That's how we work. Like, and you have to figure something out, you figure it out. I started calling people, and maybe somebody told me to call the consulate in El Salvador, but I, I contacted them. I sent a fax over, like, saying, urgent, please help. And I had copies of his um, Salvadorian resident card. I had a copy of his California ID. I had, you know, all this stuff saying, like, and then I wrote a note, like, when I last heard from him. And um, I called hospitals. I called Border Patrol. I called police stations. I called sheriffs. I called in Arizona and Texas and California. I called everybody that I could find to call to let them know I was looking for a John Doe or looking for somebody. I knew his fingerprints were in the system, so I knew that if he was alive and found, they would fingerprint him, they would find out who he was. I don't think the Calibri Center was really established yet. I think Robin was also associated with it somehow, and Robin was the lead anthropologist at the medical examiner's office. The consulate contacted me, they got the information, told me that they would send somebody to speak with the people that were with him to get details about his last and whereabouts, what he was wearing, and all that. They did that, I guess, and they gave the information to Robin um, Reinecke, and then I talked to Robin, gave her all the information I could. I got his dental charts um, from our dentist and sent them to her. The woman that Anne mentions here is Robin Reinecke, who was, at the time, a graduate student in anthropology at the University of Arizona. She later went on to co-found the Calibri Center for Human Rights. A key aspect of their work is to archive information about the items and remains of the missing and to then connect those with family members. This part of what they do at the Calibri Center was initially started under what was called the Missing Migrant Project. We work really closely with families to gather all of the forensically relevant information on their missing loved one, and we archive that information in a database that we created that is tailored to this issue. It's a very unique, um, private, secure database where we can archive all of this information for easy searching. The Missing Migrant Project is really just focused on providing that sort of family support. And for years, that was really the only way that we could facilitate matches and identifications between uh, missing persons and unidentified persons was through going through the data that we collected through the Missing Migrant Project and making what's called a, an identification hypothesis. That's when you can look at, you know, a missing person and an unidentified body side by side and you can say, look, you know, they have similar um, dentition, they both have this scar or this tattoo, you know, circumstantially things line up enough that... Um, more rigorous science is needed to confirm if that's, if that's a positive identification or not. Part of the process that Anne went through was looking through photos of remains and belongings and trying to tie something to Rick. But I still called and, and I came up with nothing. And then um, since, since then, um, I've been talking to Robin and, um, you know, I would check in with her. Then they got NamUs up. Before NamUs she had a different website I would go to and there was uh, pictures of belongings and pictures of people, uh, body parts and, and things that had been found. And I would look through those. What's that like for you to look through those pictures? And Sure. I, I had to wait until I had a day where I had enough strength to do it. It was really hard. It's really hard. It's uh, really hard to see pictures of people's kids that they carried with them to know that these kids belong to somebody and these kids are looking for whoever was holding this picture because their pictures are still up on this site, which means nobody's found them. To me, that was always really sad. There's pictures of cards with people's phone numbers on them and I used to think, I'm just going to call these phone numbers and, and tell this person, like, hey, somebody you know was crossing the desert and you need to go to this website and you need to let them know that, that it may obviously, who do you know that had your phone number that went missing? Somebody has to know, you know, it's, and, and I mean, I just used to boggle my mind that there was all these people and there was some information and they still couldn't find who these people belonged to. 
Yeah, I know there's, there was, I mean, seeing pictures of people, seeing pictures of people that I didn't know that were already dead didn't bother me so much as seeing their personal belongings. I think for some reason that was harder and that there was always that nervousness that I would come across something that that uh, belonged to Rick. You know, you're almost waiting for, it's almost like, like you're waiting for that scary scene in the movie where the adrenaline's building up and you're waiting for somebody to jump out and it scares you, you know, like that's kind of like how it felt. Like every time I clicked the next picture, it was like, is this going to be it? It never was, but uh, I still look. Anne was left with little information about what happened to Rick. Though she tried to get help to find him, she was left not knowing what happened for years. Uh, It took a toll on me. It really destroys this part of your heart that it's hard to kind of put a finger on it. You just never really feel the same. It's just complete, it's just this emptiness. And also knowing that somebody out there knew what happened and I couldn't find them. Like, it's maddening, it's devastating, it's lonely, it's empty, it's dark. It took a lot of faith in God, and I'm not a huge religious person, but it took a lot of strength to not um, fall into depression, to not feel sorry for my son and myself all the time, you know, because it was such a terrible feeling to feel. Um, and also to not let my son know how horrible I felt because I didn't want him feeling that way. I wanted him to think that it, it was going to be okay. After the break, an unexpected encounter at a thrift store gives Anne some answers about what happened to Rick in the desert. Stay tuned. Thanks to RX Bar for supporting Thin Air Podcast. RX Bar is a whole food protein bar made with 100% whole ingredients and no BS. RX bars are made with a few simple clean ingredients where every ingredient serves a purpose. They're gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free. They've got no added sugar, no artificial colors, artificial flavors, preservatives, or fillers, and it's got a whopping 12 grams of protein. So Daniel and I were lucky. We got to try a whole variety of RX bars delicious flavors. They've got sweet like mixed berry and blueberry or savory like peanut butter and chocolate with sea salt. These quickly became my go-to snack. I always kind of shoved one in my purse. My personal favorite was the peanut butter chocolate. The chewy peanut butter matched with the sweet chocolate. Oh, it was so good. It was the perfect combination. You have to try it. To try RX Bar and get 25% off your first order, go to rxbar.com slash thinair and use the promo code thinair. That's rxbar.com slash thinair, promo code thinair. Before the break, Anne described what it felt like to have nowhere to turn and no answers when it came to her missing loved one. The Calibri Center serves as a bridge between the families of the missing and law enforcement. A loved one contacts Calibri, and they take that information and store it for the identification of remains and belongings. Once we realized that this crisis was large enough that we needed to build an organizational structure around it in order to really address um, this disaster of, of death and disappearance on the border. So our role is really to take these missing persons reports, archive this information, organize it, be very rigorous with the forensically relevant data that we're collecting on these missing persons reports, and then facilitate comparisons between that information and the information of the unidentified dead in Pima County. After years of working specifically on missing and unidentified persons cases, we recognized that if all we do is help identify the dead, then we're just not addressing the entrenched structural inequalities that are leading to people disappearing and dying. And we're we're basically providing a Band-Aid solution that's not at all critical of of what's happening and who's causing it. So the other really important part of our work, um, apart from you know forensic investigation and human identification, is human rights advocacy. Doing our best to uh, you know publicize what's happening on the border, but really to give the families 
of the missing and the dead the opportunity to hold the microphone and have their voices heard. In terms of our relationship with Border Patrol, there isn't a whole lot of collaboration around this issue in particular. If we have very specific information on where somebody went missing and they're still actively missing, we will call Border Patrol because they have the resources to get to that person and potentially make a rescue. Unfortunately, um, they need very, very specific information and often the information that we have is not specific enough. The humanitarian community right now in in Tucson, um, there is a lot of tension right now because Border Patrol recently raided a humanitarian aid camp in the desert. No More Deaths, another nonprofit that that works on the border and and a close um, ally and colleague of of Colibris, they've worked for years uh, hiking migrant trails and leaving water for people who are actively crossing. And they've always maintained a camp on this private land where they've, you know, had this semi-permanent medical aid camp. And, you know, if they find people who are in need, they bring in them to this camp and provide them medical care. Border Patrol has always known about it and always left it alone. But after the election of Donald Trump, things have really changed. They raided the camp a couple weeks ago and arrested three migrants who were seeking medical aid there. The relationship is tense at the moment. One thing that Chelsea stressed was that the Calibri Center does not do searches for the missing themselves, but rather collects information from the remains once they've already been discovered. We don't have the ability or, or um, you know, equipment uh, necessary. These are very remote regions. And sometimes even the, the sheriff's department doesn't even have the resources needed to go on recoveries. And, and in that case, Border Patrol will make the recovery of, of the remains. Usually the way that remains are found is 100% by accident. It's somebody who's out hiking. It's a Border Patrol agent who's who's looking to you know, apprehend migrants who are actively crossing and they stumble across a set of remains. Sometimes it's it's tribal members from the Tohono O'odham Nation who are out harvesting cactus or, you know, just living on their land and, and their dog will bring them some human remains. Another aspect of the Calibri Center's work is collecting DNA in order to facilitate exact identifications of unidentified remains with family members. The center collects DNA from family members of the missing for comparisons. What we realized and what we kind of always knew from the beginning is that this work of trying to identify people in this fashion is very time-consuming and arduous, and it's not the best solution because it's not going to yield the highest number of of identifications possible. We really need DNA technology to address this crisis because, number one, many of the people who are crossing are physiologically similar. So these are folks who are marginalized in life enough so that, you know, they're forced to walk through a desert to, to try and seek better opportunity for themselves and their families. So often that is reflected in Um, in their physical state. So that means that many of them have never seen a dentist or a doctor. There might not be any dental work present, no medical records to speak of, shorter in stature. Like I said, pretty physiologically similar. So, So trying to facilitate matches between that group of people and then on the unidentified side, you have highly decomposed remains where most identifiable features are are gone. It was it was kind of like looking for not a needle in a haystack, but two needles in two haystacks. We realized that we needed DNA to be able to actually effectively work to identify people. Since December 2016, we've now collected 284 family reference samples. So the DNA from the dead is now being compared to the DNA of the families of the missing to to try and facilitate blind matches. And we're already having some success there. Anne has worked with the center to provide DNA in case Rick's body is ever discovered, but she's not sure if it will ever lead to him being found. It's really hard. I, I don't know how much I can depend on forensics either. Like, I mean, people have been in the desert for a long time, and I know that they're pretty dependable. But if you're if you find one arm bone, I mean, how it's like you know, then they use that to to try to figure out somebody's height. It's like 
it's it's impossible. And then you don't know the sex. And yeah, it's it's hard. We did go last November. So I took my son to give his DNA. Rick's brother and sister also went and gave their DNA. So that's, I feel like we've done pretty much everything we can do at this point. Uh, it's hard to believe that all these other remains have been found and nobody's claiming them. And here I am looking and I don't get anybody, <laughs> you know, it's, that's kind of like a, a little bitter part that comes across me sometimes. Like there's like, you know, a thousand people unclaimed and how come somebody's not looking for them? And why is it the one person I'm looking for hasn't been found? And I'm sure other people feel that way that are still looking for somebody. It makes you wonder how many other people are out there in the desert that have not been reported. I mean, I know a lot of families don't even come forward. Um, I think they do maybe more now than they used to, but I know a lot of people are scared to come forward and ask because they're not legal. And what their loved one was doing was illegal. So it's hard to come forward and say, yes, I know what he was doing was technically illegal, but he's a person and I need help to find him. Chelsea also acknowledged that DNA, while incredibly useful, is only one important factor among many when it comes to identifying the missing and is not always reliable. Contrary to what you might see in TV shows and, you know, the kind of popular crime dramas, DNA is not actually a sure bet. DNA is great and can work wonders in terms of identifying people in a, in a disaster context like this. But sometimes we'll get what's called a false positive. It's like an unsure match. We'll, we'll be able to say that, you know, it looks like these people are related, but we can't, we can't say for sure that this missing person is the same person as this unidentified body without further confirmation. And that's where our data in the Missing Migrant Project comes in. Um, we can confirm or refute that identification by going on the circumstantial information that we've been able to collect. So those forensically relevant missing persons reports that I mentioned earlier really come into play because if we get a hit in the DNA database and it looks like, okay, this missing person is in fact this unidentified body, but you know, we, we're not 100% sure, but let's confirm with the, the information we collected on their missing persons report. And then we see that, you know, uh, he broke his femur when he was young and there's a well-heeled fracture on the femur. Um, those kinds of things will really either confirm or refute that, that identification. Despite submitting Rick's family DNA and looking through thousands of remains and belongings of the missing, no trace of Rick has ever been found. It wasn't until five years later, in a chance meeting at a Salvation Army in Alameda, California, that Anne finally found out what happened to Rick when he vanished in the Arizona desert. I walked in, and there was the husband and wife. Uh, I knew them because I had met them when they California before they were deported. Uh, but I did not know their names. I didn't know how to get in contact with them. Um, unfortunately, Rick's family when everything happened because they didn't have the answers that Rick's family kind of wanted or whatever. And I think that they needed somebody to blame. Like they blamed them for not saving him. So they stopped talking to them and I couldn't, I couldn't find them anywhere. I used to have nightmares. I would go to El Salvador and look for them to find out what happened to him because I had no idea what happened to him. And I have no idea. It to me was not coincidental that I walked in to that, store and they were there. Yeah, that's it. That's incredible. I, I mean, what was going through your mind when you saw them? A lot. I looked at my husband and he was like, what's wrong? And uh, my current husband and, and I said, um, those are the people that were with Rick in the, in the desert. Those are the last people that saw him alive. I didn't know if they would be mad at me or if they would, I mean, I didn't know. I didn't know if they would even talk to me. And I was Scared, but I, I looked at him and I said, like, I have to talk to them. I can't just walk out of here. Like, I've been looking for them for years. And they're, you know, like, here they are with their kids and they had no idea. I didn't look the same as I had. I'm, when I when I was with Rick, I was, you know, 300 pounds. I was, and at this point, I was, you know, 170 
160 pounds and, and was in shape and had lost all my weight. And you know, my son was, you know, five years older. He, they would have never even, they would have walked right past me and not known it. They looked identically the same. Like I, I recognized their kids. I recognized them. And I said, so anyway, so I, I walked up to him and I, um, I said his name, the guy's name, and he froze and he turned around and they just immediately started crying. They hugged me. And then we, we talked for a long time. That is crazy. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I mean, it's one of the, the coolest stories I'm going to probably ever be able to tell in my life because it was so, I mean, it's such a small world, but at the same time, it's like, I feel like somebody had a, a, a bigger hand in that. And so we went to their house. Um, we made pupusas. We talked. They told me about what happened. It took them, I think, two years to come back. Um, when they finally made it, they were deported two other times. They're still not legal. Yeah, they're still not legal, but their kids are legal. And they're great people. You know, they work really hard to provide for their kids, and they do it with um, with integrity and dignity. So what they told me was that they had been deserted by either one or two coyotes in the desert. They had ran out of water. It was like three days at least in the desert lost. Rick was in really bad shape. He couldn't talk because his throat had closed up from being so dehydrated. And he was trying to drink his own urine, and his urine was brown. He was still trying to drink it because they had nothing. Uh, And they told him, you know, come the evening time when everybody was going to take off to start walking, um, they told him, we're not, you know, we're not going to go. It was the husband and wife and one other woman. And they said, you know, we're not going to. We're not going to go because we're scared that we're going to die. We're scared that you're going to die. We don't think that we're, we'll make it. And so we're going to wait. And I guess she had a mirror and she was going to use the mirror with the sun to call for help with the helicopter or whatever. He said no. They begged him to stay and he said no. And he said, you know, he was trying to tell him. I forgot. He had a picture of uh, our son. And, you know, it was basically telling like we're like, we're almost there. You know, I just have to walk a little bit more. So the group set off to start walking, and they were walking up like um, one of those things, like how when it rains and the water makes like a path into the hillside. I forget what they call it. And so they were walking like kind of up that, and he fell. And so they ran out to, and, and, you know, he was falling behind away from the rest of the group. And so he ran back out and told them, you know, come back with us and let's, get rescued and then we'll, we'll try again when it's safe uh, and, and he said no uh, I have to go I have to get to my son and he took off and so they were rescued and then I guess like two or three days later they were in the detention center they had you know and they were put into a room with the rest of the group and they he said he knew immediately he saw everybody but Rick and he knew that he was dead and somebody in the group said that they thought they heard him fall, but they weren't sure it was dark. And so they don't, you know, come morning light, he was just not there. It's still very difficult even after that to not, to, to know that he, he was out there somewhere by himself and he, di- and he died alone. The fact that somebody thought they heard him fall, but nobody really knew means that nobody, you know, I mean, nobody could stop anyways, but nobody knew. And to think that he lied there knowing he was going to die and there was nothing he could do about it. You know, you can't call for help. You can't do anything but lie there and die. Knowing that he was somewhere out there or he is somewhere out there somewhere, even if he's in the medical examiner's office somewhere or if he's out in the desert somewhere, it's just, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. Anne noted that one of the most important things about this chance meeting with the last people to see Rick alive was the chance to tell them that she didn't blame them for what happened to him. I felt horrible that they had been blamed. And uh, in any part, you know, it just, like, none of us know what it's like to have to be surviving in those conditions. And I I found out way more about it after everything happened by just researching and, and trying to put myself in their shoes thinking, what would I have done? I couldn't have carried him. I couldn't have saved him. Like here, these, this husband had to take care of his wife or the wife had to take care of the husband. They had two kids back home. They're both like five foot one and Rick was like six feet tall. I mean, there was no way they could have helped him and they had to survive. 
After coming to an understanding about what happened to Rick, the hardest thing for Anne was figuring out how to explain it to her son. He's 10. Yeah, so, um, but he, last last year I took him to Arizona. Um, uh, last year on his birthday, I took him, uh, we met Robin for the first time in person. Um, it was awesome. And we, she went with us and we went to the cemetery for unidentified remains because that was the closest thing I could give my son for closure. You know, just told him, there's your dad, you know, you're not alone in the world with what happened to you. And your dad's not alone. Like, there's all these people. And these people also have families. And, you know, because it's, it's hard for him because he doesn't have friends who, you know, their dad's missing. I mean, it's just not a common occurrence with the people he goes to school with and the friends that he has. And so he feels very isolated in that situation. All of his friends have that. So I told him, you know, so we, that was really good. And he's he's so sweet. I mean, we brought, like, uh, some flowers to take. And there's a huge portion of that cemetery where there's just bodies that are buried, but there's no markings. It's just dirt. Robin explained that to him. And so he took the flowers and put them all kind of, like, right there. He said, because those people, he said, those people deserve to be recognized, too, and they've, they've been forgotten. We did that, and then we drove all the way down to, as far as we could, towards the border, into the desert. And I even drove down some little paths that I think were supposed to be for, like, Border Patrol ATVs, but it got a little bit scary, so we uh, we turned around. <laughs> yeah, we were stopped by Border Patrol and had our car searched. You know, in that moment that I used to explain to Andrew how, you know, how hard it is to try to come across the border that way. And um, then he finally was able to go through what I had gone through when I first found out something had happened. He, you know, started going, to, uh, well, Mom, can't he still be alive somewhere surviving off the land? And I said, no, there's no water. And he said, well, there's water in the cactuses. I said, yeah, honey, but not enough for, for you know, six years and seven years or whatever. And I don't know how long it's been anymore. Last year would have been seven years, yeah. And so he said, but I thought you said he was with his crew. That's what he said. And I, I said, well, he was with a group of people, but honey, they all made it. And uh, that's when he, he, he just started crying. He cried, he cried, he cried. He just cried and he fell asleep. And then he woke up about 10 minutes later and he was, I remember I was driving, I took a picture of him that he, when he was crying because it was just it was devastating and in that moment I wanted to capture I'm not a photographer but I love capturing moments and uh, it was a hard moment to capture but he you could see the devastation he woke up and he was like twitching in his sleep and he woke up and he said that he had a dream that he was on he was on one side of a, a wall uh, with a door and his dad was on the other side and, and he said his, his dad was banging on it trying to get through and he was banging on it trying to get through to his dad it was sad you know kids are pretty incredible but um but no anyway i think that that trip provided a lot of closure for him Anne feels very lucky to have been able to speak with the last people who saw rick and to be able to put the pieces together of what happened that night many whose family members go missing on the border don't have any idea what has become of their loved ones it's hard to get a sense of how often people go missing here and chelsea warns against the information found in statistics Something interesting is, you know, we don't know the true number of of missing people on the U.S.-Mexico border. There's no way to quantify that. We're working to consolidate our information with other organizations who collect reports of this type to try and arrive at an estimate. Most of, of the people who come our way do so because of word of mouth. So once we have the capacity and we're a big enough organization to actually solicit reports, I think we're going to see that the number of the missing on the border is higher than anybody ever anticipated, which is really, really devastating. But also, I think there's an obsession, especially in the local media in Tucson, for the numbers of migrants that have died each year. So at the end of the fiscal year, we can always expect a, a rush of media to come speak to us and ask us, okay, are the, are the deaths up or are they down? Number one, they don't ever dig into those numbers. So, for example, if, you know, 100 and 77 people died in 2016 and then 100 and 
67 died in 2017. The media is just going to, without a second thought, celebrate that as like a decline in deaths. And that's really problematic because it doesn't get at the, the true number of people dying because we don't know how many have gone missing. But number two, um, you should never celebrate any number of deaths as any kind of success. And number three, perhaps the most important, is that that number doesn't actually reflect the death rate. So on paper, it might look like from one year to the next that, you know, deaths might be in decline because 10 less died one year than the year prior. But the real truth is that less people are crossing than ever before. Migration is actually at a net zero right now. So if you have less people crossing, but a, a much higher percentage of them are dying, that's not anything that anybody can celebrate. Something that's been very frustrating for us is anytime, you know, the deaths are appear to be, you know, in decline, um, articles will come out praising Border Patrol as, as the reason for the decline. They'll say things like, you know, um, thanks to the increased patrols, you know, people are being apprehended and not going missing in the desert. And that's really such a backwards, such a misguided thing to say, because in reality, it's those very patrols and securitization that is causing death in the first place. There's a lot that the media does that doesn't really highlight that these are human beings, that these are families, these are mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers who are important and irreplaceable and their families miss them and care about them. And, and so much of what we do at Colibri is really, you know, yes, it's forensic investigation, it's, it's advocacy, but it's also working to just recognize that this person existed, that they matter, that they were special, and that they disappeared and that it's not okay. Something that always comes up when speaking about illegal immigration is the idea of a wall to prevent immigrants from entering. Both Anne and Chelsea find this laughable and argue that it would not have prevented Rick's attempt at entry. Sometimes when we talk about death and disappearance in the desert and the fact that people are traversing the desert, um, you know, some people will take that as an opportunity to say, well, clearly we, we need to really just seal off the whole border and then nobody will go missing. And I want to address that because actually that's really, really misguided. I have worked on this issue for years and I've made many friends in um, this community and I, and I know many Border Patrol agents who actually laugh at the idea that we would ever be able to seal off the, the border. It's one of my favorite questions to ask, you know, any border enforcement officer that I meet because unanimously they, they say, of course not. This, this terrain is so rugged and isolated that there is no way that you're ever going to fully be able to enforce it. We've spent billions of dollars trying and we're not going to succeed. Perhaps a more important question is, is the enforcement that we already have working? And the answer to that is no, it's not. It's not stopping the importation of drugs. Study after study has proven that the vast majority of drugs that enter into this country do so through legal ports of entry, not through the desert, not through, you know, sneaking things under the border, but in trucks in daylight through legal ports of entry. You know, the other thing that enforcement pretends to, to do is to stop migration. Well, it's not doing that either. Um, our economy is stopping migration. So if border enforcement isn't stopping drugs and it's not stopping people from crossing, what is it achieving? People are still going to find a way to get across it. Like, are you kidding me? I, I told the last person that asked me on an interview, I said, okay, now Rick wasn't Mexican, but I was like, have you ever known a Mexican family or a person? Like, they will make wine out of water so like if they will t they will take their pants off and tie them together and throw them over like to use as a rope like are you kidding they will they will make it work like it's it's they are not going to give up you know they they ask me like if Rick would have got 
to the wall, do you, you know, like, do you think he would have, do you think it would have deterred him from coming? I, I said, hell no. Have you ever had a child and had that child taken away from you? Or been taken away from your child? Do you understand what it means to, like, be a parent and have your, your heart ripped out of you and knowing it's on the other side of this wall? Like, that, nothing was going to stop that man from getting back to his son, like, you know, unless he died. That was the end result, unfortunately. Uh, but, no, it wouldn't have stopped him. Uh, I, I know that. I don't think it will stop anybody when because you're... Emotions have so much power and control over us as human beings. There's, you know, it's hard. Sometimes it, it, it blinds the physical aspect of things. Do you think he'll be found someday? No. I don't. I think I did up until a few months ago when I realized that, I mean, we, we did the DNA sampling, and I know that it can take, I think, six months to a year. But I, I don't know. I think that a lot of people are going to be found through the DNA project. I just I just have a feeling about my situation and I'm okay with it. I, I mean, I feel like I made peace and closure with the situation very shortly after I knew that something had happened to him. The hardest part was being able to explain this to our son when he got to be old enough to understand. I know that his mom needs that closure to have his remains found. Uh, it's a cultural thing, I think, more than anything. And I think that there's a part of her, because of it, because she's a mom, is still hopeful that he's alive. I don't know. No, I don't. I don't. Th I think that if he was going to be found, he would have been found. And I say that because I was very lucky enough to have way more information than most other people were able to provide to Robin. I had dental records. I mean, unless they found other parts of his body besides his skull. She's cross-referenced the dental records for me uh, a few times with nothing. And I kind of find it hard to believe that after this many years, if his remains were somewhere still in the desert, that they wouldn't be covered up by dirt and sand and all sorts of stuff. So, I, you know, I, I don't know. Both Anne and Chelsea argue that immigrants who enter the country illegally deserve compassion. The voice you are about to hear speaking to Chelsea is Claudia, our intern. So you mentioned um, journalists trying to find like flashy stories. How would you say that journalists and the media have created the sort of environment around these illegal immigrants? Um, yeah, well, I think one major way is, is kind of, you know, highlighted just actually in the sentence that you just spoke, you know, referring to people as illegal. Really, that's that's been a, a very successful campaign on the right um, to, to kind of dehumanize um, undocumented migrants who are crossing. Um, it's interesting because there's no other crime or infraction that would get you labeled in that in that kind of dehumanized way. Like you can steal a car and you're not going to be referred to as an illegal, you know? Um, it's sort of like your very presence defines you. I've always been contacted by people that are looking for a political standpoint that are really fighting the, um, the politics uh, around this type of situation don't get super involved uh, in that because it's, it's a conflicting, it's something that's conflicting within myself and being, being an American, um, you know, it's like it affects both sides of, of my opinion, right? And so um, it's different when it affects you, which is like the message I would try to send out because it's no longer, you know, I, didn't, I knew nothing about this type of, these types of things happening until it happened to me. Jose Ricardo Garay, who goes by Rick, was last seen near Sasabe, Arizona. He was trying to return home to his young son and fiance in California. Rick is a Hispanic male, and at the time he went missing, he was 40 years old. He has short black hair and brown eyes, and several identifying tattoos. A lion on his chest, a tattoo that reads Garay, that's G-A-R-A-Y on his right forearm, and a tattoo on his left arm of two hands holding a baby and the name Diane. It's believed that he was wearing blue jeans and a green shirt, white tennis shoes, and a wooden rosary with a cross. He was last known to be alive on July 30th, 2009. If you have any information about the disappearance of Rick Garay, please contact the Calibri Center for Human Rights. You can check them out at calibricenter.org. 
We would first like to thank our amazing intern, Claudia Drace, for all of her amazing work. This story was largely conceptualized by her. Before she returned back to school, we recorded a quick interview about her interest in this topic. I go to the University of Arizona, and I'm a double major in journalism and political science with an emphasis in foreign affairs and a minor in Spanish. Of course, I was attracted to this topic because A, it's about missing people like this podcast, and B, because it's in Arizona, so I kind of have a connection to it going to school there. We need to identify that these are human beings. So I think there's just an issue in general with our immigration system that needs to definitely be fixed. And I think a big part of that, and I think something that would help to change that, would be to know that these are people and just to identify that, because we've definitely lost sight of that. We would like to thank Anne, Rick's fiance, for speaking with us for this story. We would also like to thank Chelsea Halstead from the Calibri Center for Human Rights. They are such an incredible organization. Please check them out and share the work they do. They are on the front lines of this human rights crisis. That's calibricenter.org. We have to give a shout out to our amazing donors over at patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. On our Patreon, you'll find more ways to get involved with our podcast through rewards like bi-weekly mini-episodes, episode transcripts, and more. We have to give a shout out to our amazing donors over at patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. On our Patreon, you'll find more ways to get involved with our podcast through rewards like bi-weekly mini-episodes, episode transcripts, and more. We would love to thank our executive producers, a reward that's available through our Patreon. They are Lark McManus, Heather Cadu, Bonnie Mortensen, Mistaya Pena, Elizabeth Farmer, and Anthony Loper. We love all of our patrons and thank them so, so much for their incredible support. We also want to thank our audio intern, Chris Reich, for his help with the editing, mixing, and mastering of our podcast. Music today was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. To check them out, head on over to sessions.blue. We also licensed some songs from Poddington Bear's extensive music archive, Sound of Picture, for this episode. Join us again in two weeks for a brand new episode.